Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, good morning. It's great to see you. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms. We honor and bless you today. It's so, so fun to, uh, to have you a part of our lives. You're, you're such a, a life-giving presence at every level. So happy Mother's Day. Hope today is special for you. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline South. And uh, man, I'd love to get the chance to meet you. If today's your first time in church after being out for a while, or if you've got questions, uh, none of that's off limits. We'd love to walk with you and process the claims of Jesus with you. So thanks for being with us. Hey, before we jump into our text today, I've got just one quick uh, family business deal that I want to throw your way just to give you a heads up. Uh, We're in a season in the life of our church where we've been able to do a lot of leadership development and are now uh, about four weeks away from, a little, a little beyond four weeks away from, uh, being able to install some new pastors. Uh, at, at the church, you might hear us talk about elders or pastors. Those are synonymous terms. We love team ministry and don't believe in like the one-man show deal. Uh, it's not like one leader can, can actually shoulder the weight of, of the calling to lead the church of Jesus. So we believe in team ministry. And, and, and one of the things that we're committed to is continuing to add more and more pastors to our team. So across Frontline Church, uh, all five of our congregations spread out across the metro, we're going to be adding some new pastors to our team. And I want to throw up the slide to you. And the one that personally I'm most excited about that we're putting forward is uh, Will Gaines, our very own Will Gaines. So... Will has, Will has been a part of our team and a part of our church for uh, 13 years. He's uh, been a part of South for a little over a, y- a year, two years, actually. We're coming up on two years. Wow. And uh, last year didn't count, by the way. We're just agreeing that last year didn't count for anybody. So he- he's been a part of our team here for about two years, and many of you have personally experienced uh, his pastoral leadership. And so here's what we're asking you to do. If you have any concerns about Will, his character, uh, the qualifications that he is called to fulfill in 1 Timothy chapter 3 or in Titus chapter 1, or any of these other men that you might know or something about them that would disqualify them from being a pastor in the church of Jesus, uh, then we want you to email Rex Barrett. You can email him at rbarrett at frontlinechurch.com. His email's down at the bottom of the slide. Uh, don't make it anonymous. We don't receive any anonymous requests or anonymous uh, complaints or anonymous issues. So it has to be like, here's the specific issue. Here's the thing that I'm raising. And we take those very, very seriously. So if it's about Will or anybody else, send those into us. And we're going to put this up and, and include this in our happenings weekly email that goes out for the next four weeks because you get four weeks to raise any concerns that you have about these men. Sound good? Okay, great. We're excited to add uh, some new pastors to our team across the board. And then on June 3rd, we're going to be scheduling an installation service and God willing be installing these men as pastors in the church. So really exciting times. Um, If you have your Bible, Mark chapter one, and I want to take a second and pray for us and then we're going to jump in. Father, thank you for uh, the joy of gathering with your people and the joy of, of having moms in the room and, 
and the joy of being a mom. God, we pray today that you would meet these ladies in both their fears and in their joys and in their sorrows and in their pains. God, we pray that you would strengthen them and bless them and fill them with your spirit. And today, God, we just confess that we're all in need. We're all needing more of you. And whether we feel that or know that or not, the greatest need that we have in this moment is to encounter your presence. So would you come and would you move? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to think with me about something. Think with me about the fact that the word Christian is only used three times in the entire Bible. Three times. Genesis to Revelation, the word Christian only shows up three different times. Now, contrast that with the word disciple. The word disciple in the New Testament alone is used 252 times. Three times, 252 times. How different is that? Now, what's really fascinating to me is that over the years, over the centuries, this word Christian has moved to the forefront of how we identify and think of ourselves, and this word disciple, in many ways, has moved to the background. So the way that we often describe ourselves is primarily as Christians, uh, whereas the scripture's way of primarily identifying us is as disciples. Now, here's why I think that that matters, and here's why I'm making a case of this here is because there are certain things that come to mind when you hear the word Christian, and there are certain things that come to mind when you hear the word disciple, and I think that we should take notice of this. Well, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christian? For most people in Oklahoma, when they hear the word Christian, what comes to mind is, oh, that's the group of people that has a set of beliefs, a set of truth claims about God or the person of Jesus Christ that they mentally assent to. So I'm a Christian because I believe in God. Or I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus loves me and died on a cross for my sins. I'm a Christian. So primarily the way that we identify ourselves as being Christians is around a set of beliefs that we we have and hold about God or about the person of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Maybe if you're out of the church, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christian is distorted and broken. And whether you like this or not, for many people in the West, specifically in the U.S., when they hear the word Christian and they don't identify themselves as that, what they hear instinctively is, oh, that's a group of people that are part of a certain political voting block. Right? They're on the, the Christian right, basically. And, and, and so for them, Christian means evangelical Christianity, and that means a certain political party primarily. And so whether you like that or hate that, that's the reality in the world. And my point is that just by saying Christian, all of us kind of have this idea of what comes to mind. Now, now contrast that with the word disciple. What comes to mind when you hear the word Disciple. I actually think that for most of us, you think of following Jesus. That's what being a disciple is. It's hard to imagine disciple apart from following Jesus. So really, disciple is emphasizing this reality that we are orienting our entire life around the person and the teachings of Jesus Christ. That it's not just a set of mental assent truth claims that we believe, but it's a set of lifestyle changes. It's actually a set of orienting our whole selves around Jesus and around who he is and what he taught. How different 
is the, the, can it be with those two words? And here's why I, I bring all of this up is because in the West, we've actually found a way to create, especially in Oklahoma, we've actually found a way of creating a culture where you can be a Christian without actually being a disciple. The, the New Testament is very confused by that. I actually can't imagine being a Christian without being a disciple because the primary thing that's described about the people of God in the New Testament is disciple, disciple, disciple. So if that's true, then what the heck is discipleship and why should we care? That's where we're headed today because in the story in Mark chapter 1, this is the story where Jesus actually calls the very first disciples to himself. And so we're going to look at some of the most essential aspects of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, what it is to be a disciple coming out of this text that I actually think have been in many ways neglected or altogether lost in our culture today. So that's where we're headed. Now, before we jump into the text itself, I need to give you a little bit of context about this word disciple or about discipleship, because this is not something that Jesus just invented. I don't know if you know this, but uh, this idea, this concept of discipleship did not start when Jesus entered the scene. Actually, discipleship had a rich cultural history among the Jewish people for hundreds of years prior to Jesus ever arriving on the scene. Uh, For your average Jewish person, discipleship was thought of in a three-tiered structure. So the first tier was open to everybody. This is young boys and girls growing up in Judaism who would essentially be brought into a training program up until the age of 12. And this training program was designed, think of like an elementary school, but the sole win, the goal, is to get these young boys and girls to memorize what was called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So you would spend your days with a rabbi learning how to memorize the first five books of the Bible. That was the first tier. Now, if you were really, really great at that, if you were kind of the the top of the class, if you will, if you were the one that was really excelling at memorizing the Pentateuch, then you would move on to tier two of discipleship. Tier two of discipleship was reserved for the best and the brightest of the students, and they would go from ages 12 to 14 into a class of memorizing not just the first five books of the Bible, but the entire Old Testament. Can you imagine? Like, I I know like six or seven verses in the Old Testament. As a pastor, it's part of my job to like study and read scripture and teach it. And it's like, they memorized as a 12-year-old the entire Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. The best and the brightest of that class, the top of that class, was then invited into tier three. And if you didn't make it into any of these, you would just kind of be ushered into the workforce and go and live the rest of your life working with dad or working with mom or whatever. But the best and the brightest after this 12 to 14 year phase, you would go into tier three. And tier three, you would actually be brought into a formal process called discipleship or uh, in Hebrew, Talmud. You'd be brought into this thing called Talmud. And what you would do if you're a 14-year-old is you would seek out a rabbi, a teacher. You would seek out a rabbi and essentially apply to his school so that you could learn from this rabbi. And what you would do, the end goal of this is to get your entire life oriented around this teacher, this rabbi. You would forsake all other ways of living and put your entire life in his hands and just follow him around 
and observe his life and listen carefully to his teachings and his interpretations of scripture and ask him questions and watch the way he would live and watch the way he would teach and then try to imitate him at every level. And the end goal of this Talmud process, this discipleship process, wasn't just to fill your head with memorization. It was eventually so that you could become a rabbi as well so that you could teach, so that you could pass on what your rabbi taught you. You would be so in line with who he was, so absorbed into his life, that his life would essentially take over parts of your own personality in your life, and then you would eventually become the rabbi. This is the process of Talmud, or discipleship. So with all of that context in mind, you you have to understand that when Jesus arrives on the scene as a rabbi, and, and you have these disciples that are dropping everything, it's not like they're just following some random person. They'd actually heard of Jesus, they'd heard that he was a rabbi, and they're already compelled to want to step in. So with all of that background and context, look at chapter 1, verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew. Can we just pause and think about the great name that that is, Andrew? Just, it's a manly name. It's a, he must have been handsome. Uh, the, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending who were in their boat rather mending the nets and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him five brief things that i want you to see about discipleship from this text here's the first one discipleship to jesus is actually rooted in his grace discipleship to jesus is rooted in grace now i don't know if you caught this But this is shocking what happens in the story because it's completely upside down to how every other rabbi worked. Every other rabbi would just sit and wait for a disciple or a Talmud to apply to his school. The the disciple was the one that would seek out the rabbi. Never, ever would a rabbi identify and seek out and pursue the student. And yet in this story, Jesus is walking along the seaside of Galilee, and he is the initiator. He is the one that sees. He is the one that spots. He is the one that recognizes. He is the one who pursues these four men, and he calls them into discipleship. You see, this is the way that God's grace works. The story of Christianity is not that you and I are seeking after God, trying to find him, trying to pursue him. It's actually the opposite. The story is that when you were not looking for him, when you were not trying to find him, he was searching after you. When you wanted nothing to do with him, when you were just doing your thing, he shows up and he he points his finger deep into your heart and he says, I want you. It's grace that causes God through Jesus Christ, to pursue disciples. This is unbelievable that it's backwards. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. Now, why James and John and Simon, who later gets his name changed to Peter and Andrew, why these people? Like, were they spectacular? Were there something unique about them? No. In fact, we know that they weren't the best and the brightest of students. We know that they probably didn't even make it to tier two of this discipleship process. Why? Why? Because they're fishermen. 
That's what would happen when you were 12 and you weren't the best and the brightest as you would just enter into your father's work and do what he was doing. And so here these people are. They're not like at the top of the bell curve. They're just average guys. They're just average people. And yet God in Christ is drawn to average people. That's really good news if you're average. In fact, as the story progresses in scripture, he's not just drawn to the average. He's actually drawn to like the subpar He's actually drawn to the ones that no one else is drawn to. Jesus continually finds people to be his disciples that society never, ever, ever would have chosen. People like prostitutes get drawn in and invited into the story. People are like tax collectors, which we're going to talk a lot about later in the Gospel of Mark. People that are essentially terrorists of the state at the time, known as zealots. I mean, imagine the, the ragtag group of people that are around Jesus. They're the people that no one would suspect that no other rabbi in the area really wanted to apply for their class. They weren't even eligible. And Jesus is like, yeah, I could go to anywhere, but here are the people that I want. Man, I don't know your story. I don't know what you're carrying in the room. I don't know what your past has looked like. I don't know your sin, addictions, and bins. But what I do know is that if you feel really broken today, and if you feel like you are empty, and if you feel like you've actually disqualified yourself from the grace of God, those are really the only things that qualify you for the grace of God. So everything else you hear about discipleship, I want you to hear through this lens that it's rooted in grace. I love this line in verse 16 and in verse 19. Did you catch it? Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. Verse 19, and going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Today, he sees you. It's rooted in grace. Now, that's true, But it needs to be held in tension with the the next thing I want you to see. Discipleship to Jesus will cost you. So it's rooted in grace. It's free in the sense of it costs Jesus everything so that we, all of us, whoever you are, whatever your story is, could be brought in and be made disciples of Jesus. And yet, if you choose to become a disciple of Jesus, it will cost you. What did it cost them? Look at verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Verse 20, and immediately, by the way, John, uh, Mark rather, uses that word immediately over and over and over and over in his gospel. And look how dramatic he's trying to make it. Verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. Now, I think in our modern culture, we kind of read about fishermen, and we think, oh, they must have been really poor. But actually, if you knew anything about the culture in this area, the Sea of Galilee was a rich, lucrative business where some of the most incredible fish, because of the sweet water of the area and the, 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 the big nature of that sea there, uh, what they were able to do is sell this fish all over, uh, even as far as Rome. I mean, everybody wanted fish from the Sea of Galilee. And I, I think at this time when Mark is writing, there were some like 140 different ports set up along the sea. I mean, just tons of boats. And, and, and the port structures were incredible. And so when you hear about this, like think about this, uh, James and John had a boat. They had their own boat and they even had a hired servant. 
So their business is doing okay. Like they're actually experiencing some financial success. Don't think of these men as poor. And yet when this rabbi, Jesus, calls them, they drop everything to go follow him. They leave their family and they leave their business. Can you imagine sitting at Dell and Jesus walks up and he's like, hey, follow me. Leave your keyboard and your cubicle and come follow me. You know, leave your financial way of providing for yourself and come after me. Now, for you and I today, it may not cost you your job. It may not even cost you leaving your family. For some of us, it might actually mean that, but it may not mean that for you, but it will mean something. There will be a cost involved somewhere. Jesus has a way of when he shows up, he wants to shift Not just some of the priorities, but I need you to hear this. He wants to shift every single priority in your heart and make everything else secondary and him primary. Here's how he says it in Mark 8 later on when he describes the cost of discipleship. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, even us today in this room, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So it may not cost you your family or your career, but it might cost you your sexuality. Or it might cost you your body. Or it might cost you your money. Or it might cost you your time. I can almost promise you it'll cost you your time. It might cost the way that you envision marriage or the way that you live out singleness or the way that you work or the way that you fill in the blank or the way that you function in this world politically or the way that you whatever. It will cost you. No longer do you get to have the agenda. No longer do you get to have the final say. But to be in a discipleship relationship to Jesus is to always let him win when you and him disagree. It's going to cost you. Now, this is hard in our culture because our culture says if anything tells you to deny yourself, then that's like anathema. That's the worst thing you could ever do is deny yourself. The core of discipleship to Jesus is deny yourself, right? So already that's hard. But here's what I want to emphasize real real quickly. It's good to talk about the cost of discipleship, but it's also important that we realize that there's also a cost involved to non-discipleship to Jesus, There's a cost that goes both ways. And I think about the story of the rich young ruler, where if you're not familiar with the story, we're going to read about it later. He actually comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, there's only one thing that stands in the way between you and discipleship to me, and that's your love of money. He was rich. He was successful. He had a lot of money. Jesus said, I want you to take all your possessions and sell them and give them to the poor, all your stuff, and give it away to the poor. And then you can be my disciple. Do you know how the story ends? The rich young ruler goes away sad. Now, here's what's crazy. Peter and John, and uh, Peter and Andrew, rather, and James and John, they left everything. And today we know who they are. Peter was the pillar of the early church. John wrote books of the Bible. We know about these people. You know what we know about the rich young ruler? Nothing. He's a nameless guy, the rich young ruler. Discipleship to Jesus will cost you, but non-discipleship to Jesus will cost you even more. 
Because actually, by becoming a disciple, you're brought into a kingdom story that's so much bigger and so much more rich than any story that you and I could craft for ourselves. This is the thing that you and I need to wrestle with as we process discipleship. So it's rooted in grace. It's going to cost us. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Transformation as a disciple is a lifelong process. Can I get an amen from anybody that's been following Jesus more than a few years? It's not like, hey, I became a disciple and everything's great now. It's like, hey, I became a disciple and I feel like I'm getting worse. You know, I became a disciple and there's a long road ahead with transformation. Actually, this is a really, really helpful story. Here's what's fascinating about the disciples in the gospel of Mark is they serve as both good and bad examples for us. They serve as good examples because they drop their nets immediately, they walk away from dad, they leave the family business, and they follow Jesus. That's a great example of the cost of discipleship. But they repeatedly serve as bad examples of virtually everything else. And this isn't just me making this up. One of the, the, the literary devices that this author, John Mark, has as he's writing his gospel is to actually show you the foolishness and the distorted nature of the disciples. Almost at every turn, he's putting on blast how they are and the way that they are. And what's fascinating is to think about the fact that this is actually through the lens of the Apostle Peter. Peter is telling John Mark the story, and Peter's including the worst examples of his own life. Hey, John, when you write, John Mark, when you write this gospel, make sure you include these really broken parts of my story. That's what he's doing. So here's just a few examples of how long this process of transformation took for these disciples. There's a story where James and John inherit a new name. They're doing ministry with Jesus. They walk into a village. The village rejects Jesus. And they turn to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these people who have rejected you? And Jesus is just like, oh, my goodness. Oh, me. You know, like, what if, what if you know, these guys, they don't get it. Right? So he calls them, here's the nickname, Sons of Thunder which is kind of tongue-in-cheek for, you guys are hotheads. You're ridiculous. I came to redeem people and rescue them, and you're trying to call down fire from heaven, as if you could even do that, right? Sons of thunder. Have you ever allowed your passion and your intensity to really misunderstand the whole point of why Jesus came? Here's another example. Peter, in Mark 8, finally gets it right and confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. And this is the big deal because the whole gospel is driving to this question, who do you say that Jesus is? Finally, in Mark 8, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one that we've been waiting for. It's like, yeah, the big reveal, you finally got it right. Four verses later, Jesus is calling Peter Satan, which just is not good when Jesus calls you Satan. Like that, as a rule of thumb in Christianity, when Jesus is like, you're Satan, it's like, you just need to know, not a good thing. And this is what happens with Peter. Have you ever thought that you had it all right and you were just way off base? Here's another example. The disciples in Mark 14, when Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of them flee. One of them, we're told in a random note, flees away completely naked. And we're not really given details like, A, why is he naked? You know, how did that happen? B, he's running away naked. Who is this guy? And some scholars think that that young man who's running away naked is John Mark, the author of this gospel. 
Just to show you how they're being portrayed in the story, my point is this, that they do life and ministry with Jesus for three years. And when it comes to the most important moment of Jesus's life, hours before his death, all of them bail. Have you ever walked away from Jesus? You ever denied even knowing Jesus? And yet here's the transformation that happens to these disciples. John goes from being a son of thunder to in his old life known as the apostle of love. What a transformation. Son of thunder, apostle of love. Peter goes from getting it very wrong to being the pillar of the early church. Without fail, every single one of these disciples, minus Judas and John, die as martyrs in the face of Rome for getting it right. Friends, you and I, in our Christian journey, I've heard it described that we are like a yo-yo in the hands of a man who is going upstairs, which is really, really helpful. You have your ups and you have your downs, but the trajectory of life with Jesus is full life transformation over time. He is so committed to you that he doesn't just want to love you and forgive you of your sins and then just let you be as you are. He's so committed to you that when you are in your old life, that as you follow Jesus longer in years and in depth and in maturity, you look different, and that's good news, right? So number four, discipleship to Jesus happens within community. Transformation is occurring, but it happens within community. I don't think it's an accident that in this story, Jesus calls two sets of brothers, two sets of brothers to become his disciples and be a part of the foundation for the early church. Why? Because what Jesus is intending with the church is more than just individualized, separated out disciples who have an individualized solo relationship to Jesus. Jesus is creating a family by calling disciples to himself. And what's fascinating about this is when Jesus calls you to himself, he actually inadvertently calls you to one another. Whether you like it or not, you're family. And by the way, that's the way family works. You don't get to pick it. You're just family. That's how it happens. And that's the way it happens in the church, is that Jesus loves us so much that he brings us into this new thing called family, where whether you like it or not, the people in this room are your brothers and your sisters, are your fathers and mothers in the faith. That's how he intended it. Matthew 12, there's a story where Uh, I'll just read it to you. Jesus' family comes to Jesus. Notice what he says. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, Jesus' mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's always using this as a teaching opportunity. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister, and my mother. Jesus intended this to be family. And here's why I bring this up, is because friends, and I want to say this as lovingly as I can, it is impossible for you to grow as a follower of Jesus by yourself. Not like it's hard, it's impossible. It can't be done. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus and not do this in community if you expect transformation to happen. 
This is something that he intended for you and I to actually be more than just showing up on a Sunday and hearing a sermon and singing a couple of songs and then waiting another seven days to do that again. If that's all Christianity is to you, I want to say it as lovingly and as kindly as I can, like no judgment to you at all, but that isn't Christianity. That's just attending a show. Discipleship to Jesus is a whole life experience lived out inside of the context of community, which is why we do community groups here at Frontline, because that's the bread and butter of life with Jesus. If you're not in a community group, Brandon Lied, pastor of community, hit him up over email, get on our website, reach out. We will do everything we can to get you plugged in. And then finally, last thing I want you to see is discipleship to Jesus is for the benefit and the blessing of the world. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, we kind of hear that phrase, fishers of men, and in the church, we think, oh, that's like a cool bumper sticker. Well, not cool anymore, but maybe cool in the late 80s. You know, that's like a bumper sticker thing, or maybe that was a popular, popular slogan among uh, Christians in the first century. No, it wasn't at all. It was actually a Greco-Roman way of saying, hey, that person over there is such a profoundly good teacher that they can catch you. They can catch you and capture your imagination and your mind and your heart and bring you in. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, I want to I do something to you where I am a fisher of men and I want you to become a fisher of men also. It's also hearkening back to the Old Testament where the world is kind of described as under the judgment of God. And yet God says that he's going to send out fishers of men into the world. And so the idea here is he's sending people out to rescue and redeem on his behalf. Jesus is saying to these men, I want you to follow me, but it's not just so that you can have a relationship with me. And it's not just so that you can be brought into community and the family of the church. And it's not just for your own personal transformation. It is for the benefit and the blessing of the world. What Jesus wants to do with you, friends, is make you so much like him that you start to have your life absorbed and enmeshed into his life so that the way that he thinks becomes the way that you think. The way that he lives becomes the way that you live. The way that he saw people is the way that you see. The way that you interact becomes so shaped and formed by him that we become radically dissimilar to a watching world, where we actually can benefit and bless them by saying, here's what life in the kingdom of Jesus looks like. Here's what sexual ethics in the kingdom of God look like. Here's what gentleness and kindness in a culture of rage look like. Here's what uh, generosity in a culture of greed look like. Here's what loving your enemies in a culture of outrage looks like. Here's what on and on and on. Jesus wants to form and reform all of the ways that culture has deformed us so that we can be a benefit and a blessing to the world. This is what he's doing. I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes the world and what God is doing and our role in it. He says, enemy-occupied territory, that's what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So there's the thing that you do as a disciple, and then there's the thing that you really do, which is you're a disciple. And every other identity is behind that for the benefit and the blessing of the world. Okay, so where do we go from here? Well, you and I are being invited into that. We're being invited into discipleship to Jesus. Not what you think of when you hear the word Christian. Not 
cultural Christianity, not evangelical Christianity, not what the West thinks of when they hear that phrase. You and I are being invited into discipleship to Jesus. Do you want to drop everything and follow him? This is what the invitation is. It's going to cost you. And I just want to ask you, as I've been talking, what is Jesus pointing his finger at in your life, asking you to drop? What is he asking you to give up? What is he asking you to set down so that you can, in a more full way, be a disciple of Jesus? Because it's actually all worth it in the end. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray that you would stir us, stir me to, in more and more ways, give you our whole life. God, we want to be like those early disciples where our life is wrapped around your life, where we know you and we're with you and we become like you so that we can do what you are doing. And, and we pray for the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to stir us into real discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to invite you. Would you stand with me today?